Well, hello. Welcome to uh, Fountain Springs. My name is Nicholas. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have an opportunity to share with you uh, today. Disney's Fantasia was produced in 1940, and it combined animation and uh, classical music in some pretty groundbreaking, beautiful ways. Um, it, it really is an artistic masterpiece. And the film was produced about a dozen or so years after the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, which took place in Kentucky or Tennessee or one of those, um, which was a trial that was more of like courtroom theater than it was legal precedence. The case centered around whether or not uh, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution should be taught in science classes. Now, the debate continues to this day, and we're still sort of asking the question, how do we reconcile God's creation of the world with scientific evidence that seems to at least contradict our understanding of the Bible. And what I find fascinating about Fantasia is that in 1940, the maestro felt the need to take a position in the debate. He suggests that what his film is about to show, what it's about to present is the coldly accurate truth, just the facts, right? He says it's, uh, it's not a product of anyone's imagination, uh, presumably uh, like a, a person of faith might believe. It's their imagination, but he's presenting simply just the facts. According to science, he says, do you notice how he even uh, pronounced the word science as if it were a person? Uh, there was this like interesting authority that he's using uh, with the non-specificity of the word science. It's a persona instead of a process of discovery. I think we could all agree I think we would all agree that these two ideas, faith and science, are often presented in either or fashion. That to have faith in the God of the Bible is to deny some irrefutable scientific facts. Or to be a person with a scientific mind is to strip human existence of any deeper level of meaning. Uh, the theme of this series, Thunderdome, Thunderdome, the idea is that you get a couple ideas in a, in, a, in a cage, in a dome, and they sort of battle to the death. And the ideas of faith and science seem to want to, to do that more than any other, right? Two ideas enter, only one can survive. But is there another way for us to understand science and faith? I can say that... Um, before I moved to Rapid City, I lived in a very progressive city, and um, most of my life was spent talking to people who at one time had a belief in God, and more than any other reason that I encountered, by far, more than any other reason that I encountered, the reason that people walked away from faith is because they believed that belief in God was simply incompatible with scientific fact. And I was sort of known as the guy who talked to atheists. I would just have these conversations over and over and over again. Faith in God is increasingly seen as unscientific, dim-witted, ignorant, foolish, sometimes even embarrassing. So today I want to talk about the relationship between faith and science, and I want to do it in four parts. And the first part is to talk about questions. Some of the central questions we uh, as humans have always been asking are, uh, why am I here, where did I come from, and where am I going? these sort of existential questions. Um, and I wonder what kind of answers would we expect to satisfy these questions? Are we looking for factual answers? 
When I ask, why am I here? Am I, am I interested in someone telling me that like, there was a night when you're, you know, when a man loves a woman and uh, the lights go out, some things happen and uh, biology takes over. Is that the kind of answer that I'm looking for? Where am I going? Well, you know, when your body dies, you get lowered into the ground. Given enough time, it's going to begin to decompose. Are those the kind of, are factual answers going to satisfy the questions that humans have always been asking? And I think that one of the greatest misconceptions of our time and maybe of all times is that, um, is the belief that the answers we're looking for can be found through critical thinking, through rational thinking, that what we need to do is dig deeper. We need to think harder. We need pure reason. And if we could just discover enough evidence, we'd be able to answer all of the questions that seem to follow us. I don't think this is a misconception because rational thought is not important. It's, it's extremely important. Rational thinking is central to who we are, but as a foundational starting point for this conversation tonight, I want to suggest that as created beings, we are not rational thinkers. We are not rationalistic, at least not first. I want to suggest that before we're rationalists, we are emotionalists. It's not that we're absent of logic or reason, and it's not that scientific reasoning isn't very important and even world-changing. The world that we live in right now is a dream, mostly because of scientific investigation and discovery. But instead, I want to suggest that rational thinking is something that happens in our mind as an extension, as a response, a reaction to something else that is happening on a deeper, earlier level, on an emotional level. And when I use the word emotional, I can't stress this enough, I don't mean like dramatic. I'm not talking about like the Kardashians or like a Billie Eilish song, which I don't actually know any, but I'm led to believe she sings somewhat dramatic songs. But I'm not talking about drama. I'm not just talking about feelings. But I'm talking about like the person that you are as your innermost self. Who is the you that is not your body and is not your mind? Which part of you is that? That's what I'm talking about when I talk about like emotionalist, emotional sensibility, and maybe you'll say like, so you mean like your spirit? I, I guess that, that could be okay. That's probably a separate conversation. But I want to suggest that we're emotional beings who interpret information through emotional processes, not just through factual accuracy, not through truths. Let me give you an example. Have you ever known somebody who in the midst of an argument in, midst, in the midst of like all of the evidence contrary to their opinion, just they couldn't let go of the argument. They couldn't admit they were wrong. No matter what evidence was in front of them, it wasn't because there wasn't enough data. It was because there was something deeper that was driving the argument for them. Their emotions, right? On an emotional level, they were attached to this argument. Have you ever known someone who was in an unhealthy relationship? And no matter what people told them who cared about them, they were, they were attached on a level deeper than rational, logical thinking could help. On a deeper level, our emotions tie us to our beliefs. We want to believe we're rationalists. We want to believe that we make decisions based on logic and truth and information, but we don't. We follow our instincts. And the algorithms used by Google and Facebook know this. Politicians and advertisers know this. News media knows this. In spite of what you say you will do, you will follow your emotions and their instincts. And so they're not making claims 
about factual accuracy as often as they're trying to stir your heart with things that you care about. The way that we feel about something determines how we think about it. So before we begin this conversation about faith and science, we should be reminded that no one is just following the facts. Nobody gets to, in, in spite of uh, how, how often maybe purely scientific minds might want to claim, they're just following the evidence, there is no bias. We all have our biases because of the way that we're wired. We're emotional beings. So maybe this will help. As we consider questions, science is intended to answer the question of how. The rational part of our being wants scientific answers. How was the earth created? How long did it take? How did it begin? But I'd suggest that these questions are preceded on an emotional, spiritual level. And uh, even evolutionary biologists have begun to discover, uh, right? So these would be people who aren't necessarily theistic. But they've discovered that like reason and rational thinking wasn't developed in humanity as a means of uh, uh, understanding the universe, but as a tool of persuasion. Using logic was used to convince others to agree with you. Even evolutionary biology is confirming what we sort of know spiritually, that there's something inside us that is other than our thoughts and our thinking. So science answers the question of how, but faith is attempting to answer the questions of why. The emotional, spiritual part of our being wants different answers. It wants to know why. Why am I here? What does this all mean? Uh, in the 1950s, actually 1946, a guy named Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He had just survived Auschwitz. His father died of starvation. His mother and his brother were gassed. His wife died of disease as well. And when he got to the other end of it, he didn't want to know how the Nazis got into power. He wanted to know how he was supposed to make sense of life. What does all of this mean? Part two. In the beginning. For this section, I'd like to make it practical. And so I'm going to invite a guest up here to join me to help us unpack this. Because the conversation of faith and science really begins at the beginning. So Jacob, if you want to come on up. We can't look at every example, but when we approach, for example, the book of Genesis, are we looking for spiritual answers or are we looking for scientific answers? So this is my friend Jacob. Jacob's going to tell us a little bit about himself, and then we're going to talk about the book of Jacob, uh, the book of Genesis. No, it's not my book. No. It's the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm Jacob Weasel. I am a general surgeon. I practice here in Rapid City. Uh, before that, I went to undergrad, studied theology and philosophy before going on to medical school at University of Nebraska Medical Center, did my residency in Iowa for general surgery, and have practiced here for the last three years. I'm assistant dean for USD College of Medicine, and I sit on the board at the hospital. So thank you for having me here tonight and giving me the opportunity to speak about something as controversial as faith and science. <laughs> I appreciate it. So let's start with the book of Genesis. Um, what, maybe I'll ask it like this. What kind of book is the book of Genesis? And does the book of Genesis, again, because most of our understanding about like the beginning of things uh, uh, is born out of the book of Genesis. So what, what kind of book of, is Genesis? And uh, maybe we would say, does the book of Genesis require that we read it as a scientific document? Yeah, as regards the question of ought we read the book of Genesis and the story of creation in particular as a scientific treatise, I would say that 
you are in no way obligated to read the story of creation as a scientific text. Um, And I would even say that if after reading the story of creation, you're left asking yourself the question, how many days, how many days and nights did it take to actually create the universe? I think that we are uh, allowed to ask that question, but I think that we're really asking the wrong question if you're led to that point after reading the story of creation. Because if you look at Genesis, obviously the meaning of Genesis is origin or foundation. So I think what the book is actually trying to accomplish is to create a framework, a context in which we as human beings understand our place in the universe. I think it creates um, a, a framework in which we understand our relationship to our creator, we understand our relationship to each other, and we understand our relationship to creation in general. Okay. Um, and, and so I think that's, it, it's important to understand it from that context, but also recognize that it is just a single part of a wide tapestry that is trying to convey a story about a loving father and an obedient son and a powerful spirit that is trying to redeem humanity. Um, so that's, I guess, how I would answer that question. Okay, so, so uh, would you say that like, the Bible is, is Genesis unscientific? I, wouldn't, I, I think that it would, um, I wouldn't say it's unscientific. Yeah. Uh, but the question is, when we're talking about science, what are we actually talking about? Because we're talking about a field of study that really has only began to blossom following the period of Renaissance and then the Enlightenment to follow, and then a period of empiricism to follow that. So really, if you look at the scientific method... and Define friend, empiricism. Empiricism, empiricism what is essentially looking at what we can observe, what we can measure, and the scientific method is a method method in which we develop hypotheses, and these hypotheses can then be borne out in studies in which we can observe and gather data and then draw conclusions from that data. Okay. So this so, is a relatively new thing in the course of human history. Yeah. Uh, so a great resource if you're interested in, in maybe reading about the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Dr. John Walton. David mentioned him a couple weeks ago. Use one of his quotes, but he has a book called uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, I think. One of the points he makes about science in that book, at least, is that, to your point, like because every generation has held scientific truths differently or has held different scientific truths, that like it would be very challenging for Genesis to speak first to science because which era of science would it want to be you know, speaking into? Sure. Instead, it seems to perhaps be... Communicating at a higher level. Yeah, I would say that the original audience that was written, uh, that the book of Genesis was written for, I very much doubt, and maybe they were, but I very much doubt that they're gathering together and trying to debate creationism versus intelligent design versus theistic evolution. So the answers that are given in the book of Genesis, uh, we really aren't asking the right questions if we're trying to gather data in the book of Genesis to answer the debate between those three worldviews. Sure, because these debates wouldn't have been options, at uh, least to the original audience. To my writers, understanding, right? yeah. probably not. Okay, but anything's so, possible. So then Nicholas. let's say this. So if we were to say uh, there's room to believe uh, that the world wasn't created in a literal seven day, 20, seven 24 hour periods, and perhaps it could have been, right? Absolutely. It's not impossible. But yeah. if we were to say, okay, so 
that, that doesn't have to be true. Genesis doesn't require that reading of it. Do, are we then left with the other option, which is sort of uh, like, if it, if it isn't a scientific treatise, are we forced to believe in D Darwin's evolutionary hypothesis? Yeah, as far as Darwinian evolution, the, the one thing that I would say, and this applies not just to science, but it applies to religion as well, is that there is something that can become pathological with dogmatic thinking. So this has plagued the church in the past with the Copernican revolution and Galileo, right? Okay. Um, this is the idea that uh, the sun was, was not the center of the universe, the earth was the center of the universe. Yeah. And when Copernicus said it, uh, everybody got mad at him. And then I think by the time Galileo said it, people were fighting wars somewhere else. So they let it slide. Uh, and then it became acceptable truth, right? Like, of course the sun's the... You know, yeah, and he wasn't the first one to actually, you know, propose a heliocentric view of our solar system, but he was the only one that got excommunicated, right, sure. from the church for sure. it. Uh, I, I would say that the church has been wrong on issues in the past, and now you have uh, science uh, assuming this form of dogmatism with regard to certain theories, Darwinian evolution being one of them, okay. so that it becomes a thing that is non-negotiable and you cannot even question it. And I think that is problematic. And I would tell you, I know I've told you in the past that I have issues with Darwinian evolution, not necessarily from a theological standpoint, but from a scientific standpoint. Perfect. Um, and so if you look at the theory, uh, I would say that Darwin only created that theory from the standpoint of the available knowledge at the time. And so he had no understanding of molecular biology or biochemistry. And so as we've peered deeper and deeper into the cell, uh, we've begun to realize that what's going on in there is a whole lot more complicated than Darwin could have ever, ever imagined. Sure. So now you have objections to Darwinian evolution primarily from mathematicians who look at statistical analysis and probabilities. Brzezinski is probably one of the, the famous ones who's actually written about it. Or you have guys like Michael Behe who talk about irreducible complexity. And what we see in terms of biology there's difficulty in accounting for all of it strictly from Darwinian evolution. Okay. That, anyway, that's what Perfect. I would say. <laughs> so we're going um, we're, we're, we're gonna to come back to uh, uh, science and progress and put uh, Darwinian evolution sort of in the crosshairs uh, going forward. So Jacob, hang tight. So part three here is a conversation about science and progress because those words... Um, they, they seem to be interchangeable, right? That, uh, of course, science leads to progress. How could it not? Um, and scientific progress is a funny thing. We often think of progress as the discovery of something new, uh, steps or... Uh, steps that have never been taken before or uh, discoveries that have never been found before. Uh, but often, progress is a return to something old, something long forgotten, but with like slight modifications or imitations. And so computers, right, uh, aren't uh, wildly new technology. They're technology that's mimicking the model of the human brain. Uh, and architecture is often modeling principles of architecture, at least the ones that we've come up with, we've, we've gathered by observing what we see in nature. Uh, art often imitates color schemes that we find uh, in the world around us. And even Beethoven's Fifth Symphony quite you know, famously was written after listening to, the motif of it was, uh, was, was written after listening to the singing of birds in his garden. Um, 
we want to believe that uh, we're always on the path to something new, but often we're just recycling something old. And there's a fascinating story in the Bible about the old and the new in a conversation about progress. The last two books written uh, by date chronologically in the Old Testament are the books Ezra and Nehemiah. And they were actually just one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, because they tell the first and the second half of the same story. And it's a story about the old and the new. It's a story about progress. Uh, in Ezra, uh, the, the Jewish people almost by miracle are returning to their land. They've been carried off into exile by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and they'd lost absolutely everything. I mean, they watched their city and their temple burn to the ground as they were carried away. And then by like a miracle, Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered Assyria. And when he did, rather than keeping Israel under his thumb, he decided to liberate them. Uh, we read in uh, Ezra 1 or 2 that God moved the heart of Cyrus, and he sent them home home with the instruction that they should rebuild their temple to worship their God. And then he financed the operation. He returned gold that was taken, uh, took gold from the Assyrians as well, and paid for it all. So the Jewish people come back to uh, like a place that was old to them to build something new. And they begin building the temple. And uh, we're not given much detail about like the building techniques. We're not told about like the tools they used or the architectural plans. Because the telling of the story in Ezra isn't a story about architecture or project management. It's about implication and meaning. What does it mean for people to return to an older place with a new mission? What does their story mean? What's really happening here? What are the people actually rebuilding, right? When we start to look for meaning before we look for facts in life, everything becomes metaphorical. Everything has like uh, these multiple layers of meaning. And uh, in Ezra, they're not just rebuilding a temple, but they're rebuilding their lives. And they're becoming again the people through whom God is going to bless the world. And they're, you know, we're going we're gonna to read here from Ezra 3 in a second, but they're not just laying a foundation for the temple. They're laying a foundation for their future and our future. So the end of Ezra chapter 3 ends with something that's truly remarkable. And this will feel like we've taken a sidestep, but I, I think it'll come back for us. I hope it comes back for us. So Ezra chapter 3, verse uh, 10 through 13, uh, we read this. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord. Again, it's as they laid the foundation. And they prescribed, uh, as prescribed by David, king of Israel, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. As the, as the foundations of the temple are laid, you have a couple different groups of people that are reacting uh, in, in diametrically opposite ways. You have the younger group of people who is celebrating and rejoicing that like the ground has finally been broken for the temple. But then you have like the older family heads and priests who begin to weep as they remembered the temple and all that had been lost. For the older eyes, this rebuilding was a reminder of days gone by. 
The pain of watching their loved ones murdered, the pain of watching their temple burned, the pain of leaving for exile. By all accounts, the first temple would have been much more beautiful and much grander than the second temple. So while the younger people are not wrong for their rejoicing, the older people are not wrong for their weeping. And when we think about what's new, uh, we, often, we often put science in that category. Uh, it's, it's, it's something else that's shown up into the conversation. For the younger people, they're just so excited that they have a temple finally. But the older people uh, maybe represent uh, those who aren't as, uh, as, as enticed to chase after scientific discovery. They're remembering a world that once was, and they're weeping in the process. See, one of the problems with scientific thinking is it can tempt us to think that the only thing that matters is what lies ahead. And there's a lesson built in this um, that, I, that I think would be helpful for us to learn in this conversation. Has anyone ever heard the expression, youth is wasted on the young? Nod your head if that means yes. When I was young, I hated that expression, right? How dare you tell me that? Um, but I also wonder, like, why is youth wasted on the young? What is it that we're incapable of seeing when we're young? And I think a conversation about faith and science, a conversation about rebuilding uh, the new temple from the old temple um, can be answered by trying to understand this better. So I'm going to try to answer this in sort of an unexpected way, and I think it's going to work. So um, this is a guy named Ludwig Boltzmann. Uh, you've probably never heard of Ludwig Boltzmann. Most people haven't. But he was a um, good-looking guy, right? Drippy, I think, is how the kids describe uh, guys like this. Um, but he was a, uh, he was a physicist and uh, specialized in the field of statistical mathematics and died in 1905, which would have been post-Darwinian theory, Right? And uh, he was Austrian, and uh, there was a theory developed about Ludwig Boltzmann called the Boltzmann brain theory. I don't know if you've heard of this, but um, and among other things, it was used to critique Darwin's theory of evolution. And it suggests something like this. Um, it's far, far, far more likely that you are just a brain an actual human brain floating in the universe with built-in simulated memories, that's far more likely than you um, are a person who was created or who was born and lived in a universe big enough and long enough to have uh, created a life for you that could have uh, experienced and lived those memories. So if, if, um, if, the age of the universe that, that Darwin's evolutionary hypothesis seemed to suggest, which was that it was much longer than we had, or much older than we had believed before that, um, what, what a Boltzmann brain theory would, would critique that with is like this idea that like, yeah, but the world doesn't have to be that old. And if the universe is only like the random coming together of subatomic particles, it'd be much easier for those particles, much, much, much easier for those particles to just come together as a brain, even as a brain with preformed memories than it would to build a universe where a human could have a brain that would live those memories. Does that make sense at all? So... Um, so 
a good way to explain this can be like with the conversation about pizza, okay? Now, this is a picture of uh, pizza that you would find in Buffalo, New York. I highly recommend Buffalo pizza. Uh, you know that they're famous for their wings, but uh, the flat pizza with like those small pepperonis that kind of curl up when it's... Anyway, so... If we were going to make a pepperoni pizza, which is, of course, the best kind of pizza, but if we were going to make, let me try to explain a Boltzmann brain scenario for you. If we were going to make a pepperoni pizza, what would we need, Jacob? What do we need to make a pepperoni pizza? You need dough. You need dough. You need cheese. You need cheese. You need sauce. You need sauce. You need pepperonis. And you need pepperonis, right? We rehearsed it. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's But you don't actually just need dough and cheese and sauce and pepperoni. You need grain and you need a cow, and you need a pig, and you need tomatoes. But you don't just need those either. You need soil, and you need water, and you need oxygen and carbon dioxide and any other number of gases, and you need the sun. But in order to have that, you need a solar system and a galaxy and a universe and a cosmos. You can't just make a pizza, right? (laughs) So if everything is random, it's statistically more likely that the particles would align to just form pizzas floating around, then you could ask those particles to like arrange themselves through quantum fluctuations, like these little bursts of energy, to ask the universe to form a universe where you could even like bake a pepperoni pizza. It's so much less likely than the belief that like pizzas would just start forming together, right? So the, the idea behind the Boltzmann brain is like we should just be walking around in space and seeing brains floating around, but we don't. Why? Right? Now, I'm not as interested in having a conversation um, that takes a side in this as much as I want to expose the limitations of science, right? There's a paradox that arises here. And this is like a little bit for like the dorkier people in the room. So the rest of you, if you don't understand this, it just means you're cooler than us. But the probability of the universe forming with the appearance of age is much more likely than the universe forming from its original conditions. Much more life likely. In other words, like life, sentient life, we don't need a universe this big to exist. So in short, it was science by way of Darwin that disproved what many people had long believed about the origins of the universe, the age of the universe. But it was only a matter of time before science by way of Boltzmann was now challenging what Darwin believed about science uh, uh, science and the origins of the universe. An aged earth that appears to be 6,000 or 8,000 and 10,000 years old, whatever it is, it might be extremely unlikely, but it's far more likely than a universe that could have like created itself from the beginning, from like a singularity like Big Bang. Again, my point is not to convince you about the age of the universe, but to teach us how to hold our progress and our scientific discovery with like gentleness and humility and to recognize its limitations Because scientific progress is always going to turn on you. And the scientific truth of today that you've used to defend, like the scientific truth that like the younger eyes among us want to use to like get the old people out of the way and change the the world, it's only a matter of time before that turns on you. And now the generation before you, right, is trying to undo everything that you've just done, right? That's why we say things like, yeah, yeah, the youth, they shouldn't have youthfulness, right? It's wasted on them because they don't know how to use it. But you can't discover that until you get older, right? Like you can't be older. You can only get older. You can't just like fast forward your mind. I'm not trying to play with words there, right? 
So the second temple, back to the story of Ezra, the second temple uh, could not compare with the beauty of the first temple. But again, you can only know this from perspective. And the younger people, and I hope you've gathered, this isn't about age. It's about newness and oldness. It's just that often younger people are you know, maybe more excited about what's new. The younger people are just excited that they have a temple again. They've never in their lives worshiped in the temple of God, and so they're excited about it. They don't have perspective. And so some of us, like young bucks for the older people, some of us young bucks are like tired of spinning our wheels. And so if it seems like we're impatient, it's because we are. Like we want to see things change in the world. And I hope you can at least remember what it was like to have some of that youthful optimism and, and fervor. But the older eyes weep in humility at how far they've fallen because they remember again what we're giving up in the midst of this. Older eyes often know what's at stake, and they've long since given up on the promises of progress and discovery and the like, hey, just trust us, this is good for you technology, because they've seen it a hundred times before. You don't realize that until you, you experience things over and over again, and then you're like, oh yeah, uh, that's not quite as shiny and glittery and attractive as I thought it was. And so maybe when we talk about faith and we talk about science, one of the most important things we can do is to remember that there are some beliefs that we need to hold with humility and gentleness, not use them as like logic bombs that we throw into like conversations with our grandparents at Thanksgiving, because the day is coming when you will be the foolish one getting bombed, right? Science has its limitations. Now, let me just say before we move on, there are essential truths uh, that Christians believe even that aren't always up for debate going back and forth. There are essentials in the, midst, in the midst of this that we shouldn't hold gently. Things like uh, belief in a Trinitarian God, belief in like the depravity and sinfulness of humanity, belief in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that salvation is by faith through Jesus alone. Those, like, those are non-negotiables in Christianity. Um, but we could benefit greatly in the faith and science conversation by not needing to be right or needing everyone to know that we're right. Um, part four, in the waiting. Jacob, I'm going to bring you back in for this. Yes, yeah, bring me back in. But what do we do? But what do we do when faith and science are in conflict? Like, they're not appearing to be, it's not just a matter of interpretation, but like, uh, what do I do when my understanding tells me something that I believe is incompatible with my understanding of science, right? What do I do then? Yeah, I, I would say that to your former point, there has to be a healthy fear regarding the stance of intellectual superiority. Um, and there has to be a recognition that the only people on the planet that know everything are teenagers. Okay. Right? <laughs> and so if you just remember not to be a teenager, I think you're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, it, no, I, I, it I honestly... It does maybe feel like teenagers are running the world, though, right now. Sometimes it feels that way. Um, but having a healthy humility and recognizing that not only are... There are certainly limitations to what we can know about the universe. Yeah. And we have to be okay recognizing those limitations and being at peace with that while pursuing further knowledge 
wherever that leads us, and not being afraid where the truth leads. Science is trying to lead us towards truth and answer fundamental questions. Faith, at the same time, is leading us towards truth and answering fundamental questions. It's just that the questions are very different. Um, But I don't think there ever ought to be a fear of where the truth leads, right? Okay. Um, And and so in addition to that, um, recognizing that the mystery is not necessarily a bad thing, right? The, The other thing that I would say is with regards to science and faith, we could make all of the most pointed arguments and provide all of the scientific data that would lead us towards an understanding of the universe and perhaps an understanding of God as expressed in the universe. But that does nothing because whether we create these philosophical arguments that are airtight or provide scientific data, there's nothing that actually compares to the Holy Spirit speaking into a life and an experience that an individual has with God, because that will go farther than any philosophical argument that I could ever create. Um, So I think that understanding our limitations and the fact that God is so much bigger than we are is a standpoint where we can understand our place in this whole thing and create, you know, maintain humility in the midst of this discussion. Okay. Um, so, uh, so what do we do though, when they are in conflict? Back to the question, what do we do? Yeah, again, I would say be at peace with okay. understanding that, seek the truth wherever it may lead and trust in God. Yeah, so um, sometimes it can seem like a cop-out to say like, hey, when you don't know, just wait, just, just slow down and pause. Um, but uh, let me tell you why I don't think it is. Um, we already mentioned that scientific discovery can turn on a dime. Uh, they're like sci- scientific paradigm. The word paradigm is a scientific term, a Thomas Kuhn term. So like when one discovery changes everything, that's a paradigm shift, you know? Um, it can turn on a dime. And one of the fascinating things about the Bible is over history, Science has proven more about the Bible than it's disproven, even though when it was written, no one quite knew why it was true scientifically, right? So um, let me give you some examples, right? Uh, Jacob, tell us why eighth-day circumcision is a good thing. Yeah, so you could talk about the medical reasons, including phimosis and sexually transmitted diseases, or we could talk about vitamin K and the fact that it's converted in the gut by bacteria. And that, you know, the thought is that up until that eighth day, you can't, vitamin K is important for the coagulation cascade. So until that point, you are at risk of bleeding out. Um, You know, we talked about hooved animals. um, Another good example, like the Israelites are told, don't eat animals that chew their cud or are hooved. Uh, they didn't have scientific reasons why. Yeah, we didn't at have... At the time. So you don't have an understanding that there are these parasites, that they're in the trichinella family, and that if you eat them, that they can cause illnesses that will be with you for the rest of your life, right? Um, But there are laws that are established that prevent you from that. So it's like when you tell your kid to do something that they don't necessarily understand why you're telling them, but you know why. Yeah. Um, And their job isn't to understand. Their job is to listen to you. Sure. So...
That's good. Uh, other examples, I mean, uh, there are many other examples, uh, like the handling of dead bodies. There were so many things that were dietary uh, and uh, uh, regulatory practices that the Israelites were asked to behave uh, or to obey. And uh, it turned out, you know, thousands of years later, we understood that there were enormous medical benefits. They didn't know that. They were just asked to be immediate. So uh, as we kind of wind this down, one of the things I want to point out that Jacob said there that I think is really important in this conversation with faith and science is that you don't have to be afraid of scientific discovery. Sometimes we can feel like we have to be on the defensive when we hear people say things about science and it's like, oh, what if that disproves God, right? Um, I would bet half of you either have like a sign or a tattoo or it's underlined in your Bible. You've underlined Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a future, not to harm you, right? But Jeremiah 29, 13, two verses later, we're told that uh, you'll know, uh, you, will, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And if you're pursuing the truth when you, with all of your heart, and if God keeps his promises, we can trust that like wherever science is leading, um, with, we, we, can, we can glean it with discernment, but wherever truth leads, it can only lead to God. And I'll close with this because we are considerably over time at the moment. For about 16 years, I've been closely following an astrophysicist at MIT named Brian Greene. I've been a big fan of his for a long time. I got sucked in with his theory of multiverse, which is fascinating. It's not biblical, but it's fascinating. And um, there were so many times that I would hear him on, on podcasts or in interviews, and someone would ask him about faith, and he would say, yeah, I just I have no interest in even considering religion or faith because you know, I just believe everything's gray matter and uh, my feelings of love for my wife are just electrical impulses that are uh, you know triggering in my mind, firing in my mind. And um, he would have all of these things that he would say about like the size of the universe and uh, uh, the order of the universe. And for him, it was evidence that God didn't exist. But for me, it always just like served as better evidence that God did exist. It just changed how I felt about God and. Um, a handful of years ago, I saw a podcast of his where he was um, talking about, you know, what the, the earth is going to be like after humans. And he was talking about death. And I was reminded of like how disappointed I am that like his journey isn't leading him to faith. And uh, it still hasn't led him to faith. So there's no really beautiful uh, ending to this story. But most recently, I saw him talking within the last year. And he was describing an experience that he had that he didn't expect at all. He was invited to a symposium titled uh, Science in the Spiritual Quest. And, you know, his position on science has always been, or on spirituality has always been, there's no way to know it. I deal with facts. I don't deal with, with, with spirituality, you know. And so he showed up because there were a small number of people there and they were all like world-renowned scientists that he had worked with. They were Nobel laureates. They were uh, esteemed scientists and uh, he showed up expecting the conversation to go the only way he thought it could, which was uh, they would all get in the room. They'd talk about maybe how great it would be if there was some evidence of, uh, of religious or spiritual um, realms, but you can't prove it. You know, and uh, he, he said, you know, when I got there, I was blown away to find out that I was the only one who took the position that would be maybe more of an agnostic position. I was the only one to take the position that like, this isn't knowable, let's not waste our time with it. And he was sort of like flabbergasted by it. And so he went up to uh, one of the scientists there who he had the most respect for. And he said like, this guy has done as good of work as anybody in the world has done. And he said, listen, we know each other. We've worked together on projects many times. And he said, when you look at me, me, what do you see? 
And this man put his arm around his shoulder and he said, Brian, I see a really, really smart guy who's just wrong about some really important things in life. And he said, but I think, I think a day is coming when you're going to you're going to become aware of the truth because you're a person who studies, you're on a path towards the truth and you want to find it. And he, he's, again, he hasn't, you know, switched camps from science to faith or anything, but for the first time ever, he's at least open to like, I don't know. Here's what he said. He said, I can see how belief in God would be really useful in the world. Never said that before. He just, you know, why, why would you believe in something that wasn't true? So anyway, I, I, what I want to leave you with is this idea that like, we don't have to be afraid of where the science will lead because again, we get to say no to it. Like it gets to be wrong. And more often than not, what it actually does given enough time is it proves like the truths of the Bible uh, more than it, than it destroys them. So let me pray for us. Uh, God, thank you for the opportunity to sit here with Jacob and to have a conversation about a very delicate topic and a topic that does move beyond facts into our emotions. And we feel this stuff deeply. Many of us have a lot of questions about it. Some of us, we get nervous, you know, even having uh, the topic brought up because uh, we're afraid of where it might lead. And um, God, remind us that we don't have to, um, we don't have to take a side. We're not foolish if we're unwilling to believe, you know, modern science. Um, we're not superstitious because we happen to believe in the book of Genesis, Lord, but help us recognize um, maybe the difference between things that are non-essential and things that are essential. Um, we love you, Lord, in your name. Amen and amen. amen.